0: Hi, I'm Martin Raymond. I'm from the Future Laboratory, and it's a matter of foresight.
1: Being prepared for what's around the corner is the key to building resilient businesses. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. The internet has unleashed the democratization of information, and social media shifted the power of influence, upending the access to trends and making them move faster than ever. Trend forecasting is scientific, but it can also be uncertain. Futurists identify signs, signifiers, and clues as to how the future may look. Martin Raymond, co-founder of the Future Laboratory, is a world-renowned thinker whose ideas challenge the status quo and shed light upon emerging behaviors that drive seismic shifts for brands and consumers alike. So, Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. I am a huge fan of your work and the work of the future laboratory or laboratory, as you pronounce it. (laughs) Laboratory. Um, Can you share a little bit with us about your path to becoming a futurist? I don't think most children, you know, tell their parents, I'm going to predict the future as a career path. They might tell you, you might want to have a backup plan on that one. But how did you arrive at sort of this? career path and sort of the creation of the business that you have today?
0: Well, I remember Kelly telling my mum when I was 14 that I was (laughs) gay. And she was very happy and understanding. And we had a really good relationship. But when I tried to explain to her that I was a forecaster, I was studying futurology, she really couldn't comprehend it and had Really quite difficult issues understanding what I was saying. So really, you know, if you try to explain that your job will entail looking at tomorrow, forecasting what could happen and using signs and signifiers from today. So tiny hints or patterns within the current culture that will potentially suggest what is going to happen over the next three to five years. And, and, you know, at the end of my conversation with her, while the gay thing was pretty easy, (laughs) at the end of this, she went very quiet. She said, oh, okay, so you're a fortune teller. And where I come from in Ireland, as you could probably guess, fortune telling was still a fairly credible you know, a kind of position or activity to do. So in that sense, she sort of half understood, but then believed that I was going to go about predicting people's future, the star signs or palm reading and things like that. And oddly, there are so many characteristics between somebody who is looking at tomorrow in that way, in a spiritual way, and somebody who's looking at tomorrow in the way that I think I would do it. You know, you apply more science to it, you are looking for patterns, you're looking for what I call lay lines of opportunity, uh, but you're also looking for innovators and early adopters who perhaps are carrying those seeds that will be planted, that will allow tomorrow to grow differently or in a much better way. So that the kind of um, areas that we focus on as a business is a group of people called early adopters and innovators. And if you look at them in the population, so whether I'm looking at America, Europe, the UK, they sit Between 13 to 17% across the population. So innovators are about 2.5%. Then you have your early adopters, about 13%. And those two groups will contain all of those seeds that are likely to affect how you and I will behave tomorrow. So our business is just focused on talking to those people, carrying out field studies with them, living with them in some cases, asking them questions, getting their expert insights, so that we can build up a fairly credible scenario or picture of the future. And, you know, you're probably thinking, you know, the, the future hasn't really happened so therefore, how do you know that your forecast is going to be right? And I think this is where we you know, remind people that generally, you're not just predicting. What you're trying to do is to look at clues, lines, indicators, upward curves in data that is hinting at how things will, will be and change and look like, and then you're using that to forward extrapolate. And I think this is a bit for a lot of businesses, I point out to them. Because it hasn't happened and because you are seeing the indicators now, you have an opportunity to not just be part of this future, but to make it better. So a lot of our activities as a brand is also about helping businesses not just build better and build differently, but build things that are likely to improve both the planet the people who live on it, and then potentially the profit of the business. For I think a lot of businesses we deal with or have dealt with over the past two decades really were about profit first, people second, and the planet was the last consideration. A lot of the time, we're trying to get to consider all things in tandem to make for a better future and a better opportunity.
1: I want to backtrack a little bit and talk about data. So I've had the... I guess I've been called on to do forecasting. So I have an understanding of what you do and a tremendous amount of respect because I don't think most people understand exactly how methodical it is. And it really does take a really unique skill set of being both analytical, but also having this insatiable curiosity and the ability to digest an insane amount of information and make connections Today, I think brands have become so obsessed with data in beauty, many of them are leveraging technology to predict trends, or so they think, I would argue everyone's looking at the same Google trends. So I'm not sure how predictive that is of trends. But while technology is certainly helpful, and no doubt has made the practice of forecasting what's next a bit more efficient, I would imagine, I don't think it will ever replace the human element of this connecting the dots. That you alluded to. I mean, how has technology changed the work you do? Because it is still very sort of about human connections at the end of the day.
0: I think increasingly, it's still, you know, it is about human connections, despite the amount of data we have. And if you think about the beauty industry, particularly, we've just finished, for example, our annual beauty report, which really looks at trends, over the next three to five years in beauty. So, in terms of just assembling that as a report, there, you know, there are a number of layers you have to. First of all, you look at the data. So, what's the existing data telling us about trends? Yeah, you know, what's the existing patterns in that data? So, simply, and you will know this: push to organic, increase you know, search for clean products, focus on transparency, big consideration among brands about purpose. But you start also seeing anomalies in that data, because what we start seeing is a small but growing group of people who are keen on synthetic, again, there is a particular group of people who are now looking for third-level verification or certification from credible parties. So what you start seeing are the tiny data points that in themselves seem anomalous, or Difficult to fit into the pattern that you would like them to fit into, and this is where I think what I call the human in the loop comes in to the kind of scenario or the plan because they're seeing these small data points we then start researching that we start speaking to the innovators who are looking at synthetic, who are looking at biotech, who are looking at how ingredients, if they are organic and if they are natural. While in themselves they might be appealing, they don't last as long as synthetic and they also come with other problems built into the genetics of their growth and use and utility that potentially may not be the best outcome we're looking for in skincare or in fragrance or in beauty. So, gradually we start putting together what we call the, the founding thesis for where we are seeing new trends. So... While people are talking about organic and talking about natural and seasonal, we are talking about synthetic and biotech and certification and a reinvestment in science again. Now, you will know why that's come about, because of the issues of fake news, concerns about transparency, the consumer's focus on purpose, their sense of well-being has now become much more holistic. So if I... Took those terms and fed them into a computer, even to, you know, we work with Google and I, you know, we work with IBM. And I think if I gave this to Deep Blue, what are they going to tell me about tomorrow? Well, they probably would tell me the things that are completely incorrect because they're not able to extrapolate between well being, certification biotech, purpose and transparency and pull them together into a credible understanding of what that's telling me about tomorrow. So in itself, I think the data will just assemble more data where I think the brain applying itself to the same data with the experts you call on, with the knowledge you previously have, with your hunch and your instincts and your intuitions, all of these things allow you, what I call, to bundle together a credible thesis that gives you a completely different answer to how the machine will spit out that data. So the machine will probably tell me, well-being is in fashion, it's on the rise, Organics is still in fashion, it's on the rise. People are talking about transparency, authenticity, and whatever. And my question is: well, what is that to tell me about the product? And how is it telling me to make the product? And what is it telling me about marketing the product? So they are the bits that I think people still do better, and I think more holistically and more instinctively than the machine applying itself or itself, shall I say, because I'm not going to assign gender to the machine quite yet. But you know how they look at those same pieces of data would be radically different to how we would look at them as a business or as an organization of forecasters.
1: I think the pandemic and, you know, the fake news has really made transparency very transparent in that I think brands and businesses can't make these kind of empty statements around value and purpose. And to your point, they have to be justified. And I think that coupled with the fact that we're living through this period of incredible uncertainty, it certainly started with the pandemic, which continues we have a war in Ukraine, rising inflation, political tribalism, climate change. And that's just a few of the things brands have to contemplate. I mean, the list is is much longer. Um, it's almost like this perfect storm. And of both political, social, economic, and just tackling one of these sort of issues would require such bandwidth, but we have sort of this confluence of them. And it has also, I think the pandemic has accelerated everything but it's also in created this incredible, I think, era of innovation of people thinking about things totally different and brands and businesses being open to trying things that they may not have been two or three years ago. In your role as a strategic foresight researcher, how do you future proof brands and businesses and organizations in this kind of environment?
0: I think really interesting question. And that's obviously one that a lot of brands will ask us. And if I, you know, we tend to start with the landscape. So what does the landscape look like to your point about, you know, the uncertainties, your political culture wars? gender wars, you know, the focus on, on increased transparency, how war in the Ukraine has impacted on our, you know, food security, how Brexit in the UK has affected both the brand of Britain and how Britain needs to play its role in the rest of the world. So all of these things sit in what I will call the horizon box in our business. So we have a platform called LSN Global, which really... Takes pictures daily of what is happening in the world. So that's our writers, our researchers, our visualizers, our data analysts, all pulling in insights about what is changing in the world and then analyzing what those changes mean in generalist terms to sectors of markets. So when I say that, if you think about we work in retail in beauty, in hospitality, luxury, et cetera. So the first bit is capture the landscape. The second bit is to filter it through the sectors of market. The third bit, which is, the, I think, the point you're asking about, is then we apply the brand filter to it. So we're working with Unilever, you know, we're working with Google, Facebook, LVMH, and they ask a question, what is the future of well-being, Or what is the future of data privacy? Or what is the future of tribalism? Because that is a big question at the moment. What are these things? So that's when you apply the brand filters. So first of all, you're looking at what does the brand feel about these things or the businesses that you're dealing with? And then you're looking at what the consumer is thinking. And then you merge one into the other with the view that you're now giving the brand insights about how consumers relate to a topic or a market or a sector with the brand's filter sitting on top of it. So a simple illustration will be landscape at the moment about uncertainty, huge debates globally about luxury, about people being overly ostentatious in product purchase, the brands they wear, the labels they subscribe to, and also seeing luxury as something that was damaging the planet, and now are looking for brands that are both sustainable, holistic, and in some ways contribute to the betterment of the planet. So that's the landscape. LVMH have then launched a number of initiatives which are trying to, I suppose, create more constraints on their brands that produce anything that's damaging the planet because they see what the consumer is looking like and what they want. So we will then speak to the consumer and say, how could this brand be better? What should it look like? How should it behave? What are the kind of messages it should carry? And then we will work with the teams within LVMH to see, are they following this pattern or protocol, can they, and if they do, what are the implications for their business? So what you're trying to do is all the time to create the opportunity out of an existing market by surveying what that market is looking for, rather than the brand producing something, then taking it to market and finding that it's spending a lot of money selling it in a way that people are A, not keen to buy into, or B, are not convinced of the brand it's doing its best for the planet.
1: There are obviously big brands that leverage your insight to help them work through this. But is there also an argument for having this skill set internally? Also because things happen so quickly. Forecasting requires a unique skill set, which we spoke about, but there's also a business structure of doing the work that can be learned. And you have recently launched Strategic Foresight Masterclass Series in tandem with a book, The Trend Forecaster's Handbook. So, with that, I assume that you believe also that this skill set be, can be learned to a certain extent. So how important is it for brands to have an internal strategic foresight team to kind of keep up with this pace of change?
0: I mean, look, I think if we were asking or talking about this 20 years ago, we set the business up in 2001. And, you know, strangely and and prophetically enough, we did it in September 2001. So not a great time to set up a business, but it was a great reminder. that. And I remember the quote from the Congressional Oversight Committee paper, and it said, you know, 9-11 didn't happen because... Of terrorism in itself. It happened because of a failure of the imagination. We couldn't imagine such a terrible thing happening. And this reminded me that as brands and businesses, you know, that we really have to understand that part of the job of the, the senior leadership team in any business is to try to anticipate the unimaginable. Because in some ways, it is the unimaginable that inevitably happens. And it is a thing that changes the paradigm of tomorrow. So, first of all, you open yourself you know, to that black swan moment. That moment when something so unique and so anomalous appears on the horizon that we go, wow, we can't cope with that. But that should be your default standard in the business. You should be looking for that. So, how do you teach your team how to do that? And really, the, the Masterclass series came about, and the book, having spoken to a lot of CEOs in the US, the UK and Europe, and a lot of senior leadership teams, where many of them were still seeing forecasting as an almost voodoo Science. They weren't seeing it as a legitimate
1: that you rolled it out the beginning every January, dusted off the crystal ball and exactly, and
0: you just did and you know, it's probably a bit like my mum, where she, you know, you believe that this sort of thing really wasn't something that we bring into the boardroom. So my first thing was to assemble a toolbox of all of the processes, techniques, and tools that you could use as a strategic foresight researcher, and that would include everything from, you know, use of data, data mining, data visualization, field study research, setting up, you know, what we call a Futures 1000 expert panel. So speaking to the innovators and the early adopters at source. Using ethnographic research techniques, using where you will have what we call closed star chambers, where you're interviewing people in isolation about a change or an anomalous shift, and then you're looking at how the wider community is seeing that in relation to their lives. So, what I'm looking for is the gap between the innovation. And how long it will take to roll out into the mainstream. So all of these things were documented in the book, you know, both in terms of the the kinds of techniques the kinds of processes, and then how you train people and where you recruit them from. And what I found interesting, having done all of that and having kind of, um, you know, spent a lot of time with CEOs, they were going, well, this is really ordinary and everyday. And so, of course it is. Once you show the techniques and the tools, these things are pretty straightforward because what you're trying to do is one you're not predicting the future you are anticipating a pattern that's built on existing signals or emerging trends or uh, anomalies that seem to be increasing across different consumer groups the second bit is you are having to like economists do this and risk analysts do this they have to then make some generalized assumptions about the particular run of the data. So the data is pointing, there's more sales of organic beauty products. There's an increase in clean beauty products. And there's a growing concern among consumers about using products that are damaging to the planet. So what you're seeing are data points that are potentially pointing to a trend that you will then categorize and call trend X, And that's when that's the point when a business can use that insight to better plan or better understand or better judge the kind of product they should be creating one, how that should be marketed to, and potentially what gaps it's showing up in the market that allows them, for example, to create something that the market hasn't really considered before. So the the techniques, once you learn them, seem standard. But it does involve parts which I think, again, businesses are not very good at doing. So, for example, when do you trust intuition? When do you use visualization, scenario planning, cross-horizon mapping? All of these things can be played out at different times to give you a more nuanced, in-depth, but also a more inclusive and diverse view of the future because one of the big failures of forecasting certainly within businesses they try to create hypothetical futures that are very clean and polished on the edges and really forget about the lives of ordinary people and forget about the lives of ordinary people from different cultural backgrounds different genders different social incomes etc. And that's the other hard bit to build into forecasting is to remind people that Unless you think about diversity and inclusion and issues in gender at the beginning of the forecast, it's impossible to get a clear snapshot of the future in a way that's actionable and useful at the end of the forecast.
1: It's also, I think, important to kind of internalize this thinking, because I think so many people think about trends as moving very quickly and you have to move fast on them. And I would argue that you actually need to move slower and more methodically and plan into it, which I think to many people is sort of. A paradox they can't wrap their brains around. But I think if you're always watching, you do have this way of predicting to a certain extent where the market is going to go.
0: Yes. You know, I chat when I chat to CEOs and that, I explain to them that they don't have time to look at this, you know, 365 days a year. That's essentially my job and a team of 70 other people in the future laboratory who will simply be looking at those anomalies patterns, cultural, social, societal shifts that are indicators of things to come. So we are just living, breathing, seeing, touching, tasting all of these things on a 24-7 basis. So in that sense, we're probably much more alert to the nuances and changes in the market than the average CEO, not because he, she, they are bad, but because it's not their job. So, what we're trying to remind people is that, you know, in the way that a pilot setting out to take a plane off the runway and fly from, you know, country A to country B will have navigational tools and equipment with them, they'll surround themselves with a first class crew, and, you know, she will then use all of that data to make sure that the plane is taken up safely, navigated through space, and then brought back down to the runway again. And this is really what forecasting is about. It's giving you the equipment, giving you the navigational tools, but also, I think, giving you the assurance that the patterns and the gambles and the choices you're making are the best ones you can make because you are using all of the data that is available to you. And a lot of CEOs are not looking at that data because, you know, for example, I, when I'm looking at beauty, I'm also looking at food. I'm also looking at biotech. I'm also looking at societal, moral, philosophic, Issues of climate change, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm taking quite a lot of things into consideration. When Chanel or Givodon, for example, or Maybelline ask me a question about what is the next. Big magic ingredient, or what is the next part of the body that we should be focusing our, you know, our energies or innovation concepts on? And, and that's the bit that I think great forecasters are not just great generalists, but they're kind of magpies for information and data, and they also have curiosities that sit outside the standard areas of convention. So I think that's the the, the other key to why I think the average CEO really just doesn't have the time. And when they tell me they have, I can assure them that they're probably not looking at it in the right way anyway because they just, they just don't have that with to do it.
1: I feel like the emergence of TikTok has almost been like this accelerant on... It's like rocket fuel on trends. Like they bubble up really fast and as fast as they bubble up, they disappear. But it's created this dynamic with brands as these trends happen faster and faster, that brands are focused on chasing these viral moments that are often elusive, definitely fleeting. That is no way to sort of build a brand, not one with longevity anyway. But it is definitely a dynamic that has to be considered. I mean, how does that sort of, I guess, genre, if you will, of trends impact the work that you do or does it?
0: It does. I mean, look, you know, the great thing is the more channels we have, the easier it is for us to make really qualified and certified assumptions about tomorrow. So TikTok is a format number 1. And within that format you have content number 2. And within that content you have trends number 3. So it's simply doing what newspapers do, what television does, what Twitter does. It's a way for us to collate and examine and see what are the things that are pushing us towards. So for example, we do a lot of work with publishers and 5 years ago 2 years ago I can tell you publishers were not looking at TikTok as a medium or a genre that would deliver ever deliver them anything that would be credible in terms of book sales why well because the medium is essentially whimsical it's short it's designed for a a Gen Z you know maybe a, a much younger demographic primarily and it just keeps moving at a speed that publishers can't cope with what they didn't anticipate is that Gen Z would start rediscovering the thirty-second book or the one-minute read, and that that would be used to drive sales of books, not just new books, but vintage and classics in a much more powerful and contagious way. The same thing happened during COVID. You know, if you think about how sloungewear, you know, that whole thing of you know dressing at home became a massive success and for retailers who were struggling, suddenly there was a big opportunity there. So we use TikTok in the way we use Discord, Telegram, Twitter, blogs, etc. as sources to give us indicators as to where the trends are likely to come from, what those trends are about and how those trends are likely to affect the kind of wider market. So if you think about a beauty te- a trend coming off TikTok, of which, you know, if you're working in the business, you know, that quite a lot of the beauty, wellness, well-being, fragrance, body culture, quite a lot of those have come off TikTok. So uh, brands are now either using that as an inspiration, but they're also using it as a medium for delivering their marketing, but also as a medium of education. So, where TikTok set out to entertain, it's now becoming one of the things we look for. For example, uh, a current trend we're focusing on is this whole thing we've called certified beauty. So, beauty that is provable has a base of science about it, is verified and certified by third-party independent voices or experts, because we're seeing that this return to the expert economy. Experts who we trust and have a digital history or an archaeology that proves that they are legitimate and true. So TikTok suddenly has become a powerful proofing tool for quite a lot of the beauty industry. So the the ephemeral nature of it and the fact that it it, seems to be constantly skittering and pushing us to other things, that's both an advantage for us, it can be a disadvantage for some brands, but also used properly, like every medium, it can be used to both diagnose, promote, underpin, and validate what we are saying about our brands in a good way. So let's, you know, the, the medium is one thing. It's how the message is delivered is the bit that we can control and the bit we can start kind of taking ownership of in a way that I suspect most brands until recently were not really understanding, the, not so much the power, but the opportunities that sat in terms of how they can use these broadcast tools in a more effective way.
1: Yeah. You know, I have one last question, and I feel like I would be remiss since I have you here if I didn't ask your opinion on the metaverse and Web 3.0, which are trends that sort of I mean, we've been following them for a long time, but they've become mainstream very fast, at least conceptually. And I think the metaverse specifically, you have brands that have either just they dove in with both feet. And then you have others who are Watching, but focused on sort of running their business in the real world. I'm so curious about your opinions about sort of these emerging, I guess, trends. Or they're not even trends. It it their new. I don't even know how do you describe. How would you describe them?
0: It's exactly you know if you think about it, the metaverse is a place, and it's like every place. You know, it has we'll have it's its good, bad, and a different dinner. And I think you know our understanding currently, or rather, when we're working with clients who say, look. First of all, what is the metaverse? And we go, well, it's a, you know, a simple alternative 3D universe that you access using digital interfaces. So whether it's, it's, you know, the Oculus Rift or equivalent, and then we go, and then what, well, My question is, once you're there, what are you planning to do there? You know, how are you planning to engage? What's your position? What's your mission? Kind of what's your philosophy? And either I think people are seeing it as I must be there without really understanding Why must be there? And also when they go there, they tend to build places. And I go, but the problem is the majority of people who are in the metaverse currently are either in things like Call of Duty, they're on Roblox or Equivalent. And therefore, you need to be with those brands. So you need to be partnering with brands who are already effective and familiar to users of the universe, one. And then if you're doing something that is quite extraordinary and different, how extraordinary and different is it? And then how are you getting us in there? What's the lure or the desire that we would have to go in there? And a simple, you know, if you think about Facebook meta have created, it's called Horizon Workstation, which is really like a metaverse for offices. So instead of going to my real office, I go to this metaphysical office and I engage with my... Teams using whiteboards and using, you know, digital screens and huddle rooms. And my question is, if this is boring me in the real world and I have no desire to go to my office, why in heavens would I want to go to the metaverse and do the same thing? So again, I think a lot of brands really need to think about what it is they're trying to do there and why would I want to go there when, in fact, all things have been equal. And given, you know, the way COVID levels are dropping, despite our great thing that we'd never return to the office a lot of people are going back for those cultural moments for the creativity moments for the conversational moments and for those moments where we can commune and create communities so again I said if that works better online we will do that but I would put a bet on that faced with the, the way the world is changing most people will want to go back face to face so the question we ask is you know why the metaverse And if you're a brand entering it, isn't there an opportunity to make it a better verse? Because at the moment, if we're simply building a mirror image of how things look in this world, that's a pretty sad, miserable, dull, monochrome mirror image. And really, if we have a chance to build better and different and more beautiful and more inclusive, this is what I think brands need to do. And this is really what we're advising our clients. So why mirror the thing when you can, outmaneuver it and make it more beautiful, better, inclusive, and I think a happier place for us to be.
1: You know, I think one of the things, I mean, I guess I have been sort of on the outside looking in, doing research, reading a lot, trying to understand. And I had someone who gave me a tour of the metaverse. And the thing that I found so shocking, I was like, is this it really? Is that there really isn't an infrastructure there yet? And so I think we think of it as this very sort of futuristic kind of place or community where I was like, I feel like I'm on an Atari. Like it is very kind of has this very there's a slowness to it that I didn't expect.
0: Look, It's a number of things you're right. It's we expect it to be like Star Trek Discovery, yes. like the holodex, and what we find it is like Atari, or it's like you know, worse, it's like the Jetsons. Do you remember the, the yes. um, they kind of that cart, you know, the cartoon family of the future? And more, I think, annoyingly, is the stereotypes and tropes that have been created. So, women look ultra feminine, men look ultra strong, superior, butch, you know, if you're looking for variation in skin colour it's done as a shading process if you're looking for how other genders are represented they look you know if you're looking with a trans person they tend to look neutral as opposed to looking like themselves so I think the big issues we have also is that the biases that we have built into our own world and I'm now trying to confront you know through Me Too, you know, Black Lives Matter, debates about trans, you know, about kind of equal rights. We are facing them and now having to cope with them. And, you know, that's what a lot of the culture and gender wars are about. But what we've cleverly done, we've allowed a small superior minority, generally men, I have to say, if you look at the people who own this real estate in the metaverse, to creep in there, to get away with it in this world and go into the next and still build the same stereotype. So I, I just say to brands, again, you risk being at the wrong side of history and at the wrong side of things. If you enter this world and allow other people who have got the firepower but don't have, the I think, the thinking power and the imaginative power to make the changes that we should be making. Because if I step into the metaverse, I can choose my gender. I can choose my colour. I can choose the kind of social nuances that I want to promote and project about myself. And I said, in some ways, it's giving us an opportunity to make right all of the things we're getting wrong here. And yet, we still end up with, and I'm thinking about the. Horizons workstation where the men look like kind of men from the 50s you know the kind of the Y shape big shoulders narrow waist the women look buxom the hairstyles look stereotypical if we put them on Barbie dolls today we would be complaining that they look offences and sexes, and yet here I go into the world of the future and wow look at that it's almost as if the 20th century or the 21st century hasn't really happened in terms of you know, our debates about gender and politics and and social nonconformity. So we just have to watch it because I do think a lot of brands are going in there and they're not really asking those big, difficult questions about cultural representation and what it should look like. And I think the good ones, and there is a lot of brands, you know, I'm thinking about who are doing it and we we provoke them into doing it because we say this is what you have to think about and also access, you know, give more access to women, give more access to people of minority background. The more access you grant and the more you make the technology available to others, the better this thing can look for all of us. But you will probably know this fact, but Accenture purchased 60,000 Oculus Quest headsets for their teams. And I was thinking, oh, my God, we now have the metaverse full of 60,000 people from Accenture. I mean, my gosh, in itself, that's a reason for never going there.
1: I feel a bit more optimistic about Web 3.0, at least conceptually, because I feel like the the sentiments about Web 3.0, brands need to be thinking about the inclusion, the community. But it does have a bit of that metaverse where, you know, it's being built by a lot of people who made a lot of money during Web 2.0 and somehow found religion, I guess. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But I do think Web 3.0 is here and is, I would say, sort of more important in sort of the short term for brands. What is your thinking on that?
0: I think, as we understand it, the theory of it is it's more decentralized. It is more about allowing us to track more accurately and map more accurately who are the players and, you know, who are the kind of people that are behind the curtain, like the Wizard of Oz, you know, what sits behind that big magical curtain. And I think in practice, we are seeing some of that because the technology is more available. It's more working from open source. and It's more working from coding that younger groups particularly are using and have able access to. And I think in itself, it's promising greater opportunity and rewards. But we we did a report recently, which was called Metatainment, looking at Web3 and the metaverse itself. And you're still dealing with fairly major conglomerates and corporations who have got both their hands on the levers of Control and also the mechanisms of how it's controlled itself. So, in some ways, we have to start educating and teaching and making available the tools and techniques to give more people more access globally. Because I think what we can risk doing is, in the way that Silicon Valley, the big five, have dominated and controlled and now are facing big questions about how they're using our data, we risk seeing the same things at WebPoint 3.0, because again, until we have access, and we can use these things in a more effective, efficient, and egalitarian way, it will be the utopian ideal, as, remember, Google was set up to do no evil. And if I ask people now, who's doing a lot of evil in the world, I'm not surprised that names like Google come up, whether they're doing evil or not, I think is besides the point, but we see them in those big brother terms. And I think this is the problem with Web3. It promises the dismantling of that power and that hierarchy. But until you have enough people who are educated and able to use the mechanisms in the right way, it's still going to be the big five that get their hands on the levers and pull them in ways that we may not be happy with as kind of ordinary users of Web3. Well,
1: Martin, thank you so much for making this conversation happen. And I personally, I always use the work you do as a gut check. So if I'm thinking about something and it pop, I was like, okay... Not crazy. I mean, you certainly have such a team of really, really, really smart and creative people. So, you know, for everyone listening, if you don't subscribe to the newsletter, you should because even I even find the things that aren't relevant to beauty or are far outside the realm of beauty, just intellectually interesting. And I think that people sometimes don't give themselves time to just explore completely irrelevant things. And I think that's where inspiration and ideas come from. So thank you for keeping that regular flow of inspiration coming
0: i've just sent you our latest newsletter which will have a lot more things in it and also quite a lot of initially useless things but as you said once you see these things they touch a nerve that nerve touches a spark the spark becomes a configuration and that configuration becomes a new trend and an idea and that's really what the future is about
1: thank you so much martin
0: Hi, I'm Martin and for me it's a matter of foresight which is all about looking at and predicting tomorrow.
1: For Martin, it's a matter of foresight. As a futurist, he doesn't believe it's possible to predict anything. Trend forecasters seek to anticipate cultural nuances, sociopolitical shifts, innovative design, and technologies to help businesses future-proof their strategies by empowering them to make the right decisions and mitigate risk. There is no magic crystal ball, but rather a practice that relies on research, observation, analysis, and intuition to connect the dots. So in the end, it's a matter of foresight. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. If you liked what you heard, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It's a Matter of is a production of Beauty Matter. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media.